all week. So when Dave spoke at the very beginning of the conference, he said, I'm going first instead of last because I want to get it out of the way. You're very welcome, Dave. Because all conference, anyone who's asked me how are you doing, I, I've said, I'm anxious. I'm giving the last talk and I have you know, nothing but time to contemplate my fate. All weekend. Um, I knew I was going at the end, and so I knew that, uh, you know, you were going to hear all sorts of wonderful speakers before I stood up. I knew that Helena Deabala was going to make myself and you cry. I knew that Jono was going to steal the show, uh, and I slightly resent him for that. I didn't know he was going to jump off chairs. That will forever be burned in my memory. Jono jumping off a chair as if it were a skateboard. So I've, I've been anxious all, all week, and um, just before this morning, I went to the back and grabbed a coffee, and Josh Redder saw me. He's a writer for our site, an excellent writer for our site, and he, I must have looked disheveled by some point at some, for some reason, and perhaps it was the rain, or perhaps it, my feelings are just, uh, you know, bubbling to the surface, seen by everyone, and he, he, he just grabbed me and he said, I'm going to pray for you. And he said, I don't know what he said other than it wasn't, un, it wasn't pretentious. Uh, it was, but whatever it was, it was effective. Because I walked away from it feeling unburdened and lighter and ready to, to have my talk. His prayer was therapeutic for me. Which, it just so happens, is what I'm going to be talking about today. The Therapeutic Message of the Gospel, Karl Barth, Rudolf Bultmann, and the Nature of Faith. Now, if you listen in the blogosphere or whatever it is nowadays, uh, TikTok or whatever, uh, a therapeutic Christianity gets a really bad name, right? Particularly the phrase moral therapeutic deism, right? The idea that Christianity is somehow reduced to personal experience and that's a bad thing. As one uh, writer put it, Christian self-help books focus on inner states and, by extension, daily life. Concerns for quotidian matters crowd out broader issues of life and death, eternity and salvation. Concern with the pragmatic business of life stands to diminish attention to affairs of the hereafter. The now orientation of a therapeutic Christianity somehow is detrimental to Christianity. And so I want to talk about the thing that apparently is so bad. Christianity is therapeutic, I wish to claim, and it is so in any number of ways. But to tackle this problem, I want to go back to where it all went wrong. I want to go back to 1921 and the second edition of Karl Barth's Romans Commentary. Here, I, I want to say, is where the notions of experience and personalism and what God is up to today in my life, those questions fell by the wayside by and large and God became something wholly other divorced from everyday life. It fell, as it is said, like a bomb on the playground of the, of the theologians, like a literal bomb, imagery that is actually disturbing after World War I, I want to say, Bard's commentary has ruthlessly iconoclastic aims. 
upending long-held dogmas about the essence of Christian faith. See, for Bart in this Romans commentary, he, he argues that there is no real path to God. God is wholly other. Anything, then he's different from anything that can be perceived in this world. There is no historical event or anything within personal experience that can be deduced to be God without qualification. There is no moral act or piety to which one can point and say, yes, God was with me there. For God's action and human action never intermix. The kingdom of God does not overlap at any point in this world, save one. God is the tangent to the circle of time, touching it and yet not touching it at the same time. Every moment in time's sequential enumeration is determined by an eternal moment that lies beyond time. A moment that shatters and pulls together, condemns and rescues everything under the divine purpose. God, God is not an agent in this world working within time or as some co-laborer, or as some impersonal force moving here or there as he will. God is a no under which all flesh comes under and through God, it, the unknown God becomes known. Now before moving on to points of criticism of uh, Saint Bart, I say that in part because Bardian Studies is, is, is a very clo cloistered uh, a group of people. They're wonderful, I love them, I hang out with them, but uh, I, dare, I dare throw rocks at the patron saint. Bart's argument is persuasive, provocative, and helpful in its own way. So because many epistemologies today begin with human subjectivity as a reliable guide to understanding his history or classical texts. Such perspectival analysis does not allow the subject matter of one's inquiry to correct the pre-understandings of the interpreter, but the other way around. The way Bart forestalls human subjectivity may perhaps be a blunt prescription, but it may prove a necessary corrective even today. On the theology side, there is the rise of narrative theology or the use of story as a metaphor for the Christian life where the kingdom of God unfolds within the sphere of human history or the way that the intelligibility of the church's belief are communal, communally self-authenticating through time to point to the church as the bearer of the word and its glory is somehow testament to the glory of the word whatever. More personally, we want to claim divine blessing for what we have already decided to be correct. We always want a God who agrees with us and more, more specifically disagrees with our enemies. We want the divine no to fall on them, but not on us. There's a very human tendency to try to decode the mystery of everyday life as, uh, to discern where God is moving. And there's a deep anxiety that this creates. To see divine blessing in the good of our life and a, a God who approves of our life decisions. We want a God whose help comes on our terms. But it's worth pausing because for all of Bart's no's and a, for all of Bart's correctives, 
it's worth wondering, does God actually help? Does Bart's God, as he enumerates him in this magisterial work from 1921, actually help? Well, yes and no. <laughs> yes, in an absolute sense, the cosmic event of salvation wrought by Jesus has decisively occurred. But mostly no. In the here and now, God is not much of a help. It's a kind of startling appraisal, which can be de demonstrated principally by looking at Bart's concept of faith. Now, part of the reason why this is so important, a God who helps in the here and now, it's because a religion that doesn't help is of no value, as John so provocatively said, but also because if people do not find help in religion, they will find it everywhere else, by any means necessary. And this is what Rina Raphael yesterday showed just so brilliantly in her talk, that people will look to anything. They'll try crystals. They'll try yoga. They'll try anything and everything. If it gives some small comfort to their life, which is an otherwise burdensome and unmanageable. If Christianity doesn't speak to that, they'll find it somewhere else. And it's at this topic, at this point, at this question, that uh, my hero, and I hope your hero by the end, enters the story a New Testament scholar by the name of Rudolf Bultmann. Bultmann issued a largely positive review of Bart's book. It was surprising, actually. Bultmann was, uh, heretofore, associated with liberal theology, the very thing that Bultmann was tearing down. But Bultmann, the Lutheran, the faithful Lutheran, heard in Bart's uh, words something of, the, of good news, something of what is true. But despite this, he had his qualms. Specifically, on Bart's concept of faith. For Bart, faith is equivalent to obedience and repentance, but it is so in a very particular way, a very peculiar way. Faith bows before the judgment of God to see no worldly assurances, whether it be within history, personal experience, or, uh, he's, he's, he repeatedly says, within the church. Bart likens Revelation to an explosion and faith to the vacuum or burnt-out crater left in its wake. Faith is a void, a hidden and unrecognized quality. Bart says, faith is an eternal step into total imperceptivity and is itself also impercept imperceptible. Like the tangent and intersection of God between the circle of time, faith exists and yet doesn't. Its punctiliar character has no positive form or shape. For all of Bart's vivid and imagery about faith. Faith is much more like a musical note that is played but never heard. Or one might say white brush strokes of paint on a blank white canvas. It's there, but you never see it. 
Now, perhaps you're thinking something along the lines of, this debate is a hundred-year-old debate about a book that's ancient at this point uh, by two guys who are long dead. And you are right, they are dead. Very much so. And you are right that a hundred years ago, things were very different than they are now. And yet, as uh, Simeon Zoll has, has noted in his book, The Holy Spirit and Christian Experience, Barth's Romans commentary set the table for theology and dictated many of the terms of theology over the, over the last 100 years. He says, quote, the influence of Barth's approach on modern theology has been enormous. And in many respects, it remains alive and active today, shaping theological reflection, even for those who have been critical of Barth. Because while Bart did go on in his many writings later to clarify and nuance the brash, youthful arrogance of his Romans commentary. Sorry, that's a tad patronizing. Um, the political, the, we'll say the polemical exaggerations of a book uh, that was needed to be said. Uh, Zoll wrote, writes, quote, what theology instead heard and still hears from Bart, first and foremost, are the ferocious negations of the 1922 Romans and the nine against Brunner in 1932, defending Germany against the start of World War II, one, and the polemics against experience, against Schleiermacher, and against dogmatic appeal to the authority of human subjectivity in any form. Bart lives on, though he dead. Now, Boltmann has, I want to say, four specific criticisms of Bart's concept of faith. The first is that it's absurd. The second is that it's unbiblical. The third is that it's impractical. And the fourth, that it's dead. So the first. The first point of contention on the absurd idea that faith is imperceptible is where Boltmann begins his criticisms, offering a string of rhetorical questions that were undoubtedly meant to mimic Barth's own blustery style. He says, but is not the paradox overdrawn? Sorry, my voice went up a little bit because Boltmann had a, a high voice. <laughs> assuming his persona, is faith when it is, sorry, <laughs> is faith when it is divorced from every psychic occurrence, when it is beyond consciousness, then anything at all real? Is not all talk of this faith only speculation and an absurd one at that? What is the meaning of the talk of my ego and that that is not my ego? What is the point of this faith of which I have no, I, have, I am not conscious, and of which I can at most believe that I have it? Bultmann will readily acknowledge that our justification by grace is, quote, not an experience, but rather a legal declaration that must be, precise, that must be believed precisely because it appears to be foolishness. Justification is, quote, present with God, even without our knowing it. In other words, salvation is ultimately outside of ourselves. But faith, by contrast, is deeply personal, essentially personal, existentially vivid. Consequently, a faith beyond consciousness, what Bultmann will later deem 
concrete existence is most certainly not the impossible possibility, but in every sense an absurdity. For but one, it is absurd to the degree that is altogether untrue. To underscore this ridiculousness, Boltmann compares this imperceptible faith to some, ex uh, to some external power, to mystic astrology. Now, when he says this, it is a jaw-dropping moment in, the, in his review. He compares Bart to mystic astrology? What? Now, manifesting wasn't a trend 100 years ago when Boltmann and Bart were trading their barbs. But Boltmann would have 100% compared Bart to manifestation. In a page seemingly stolen from the Pixar movie Soul, he writes, Perhaps I possess all sorts of astral or other bodies of which I know nothing. They are to me a matter of total indifference and a speculation which asserts the identity of my perceptible ego with such astral bodies either leaves me completely cold or seems comic. But on second criticism, if that wasn't enough, is more weighty, because for all of Bart's blustery talk of his fidelity to Paul, Bultmann finds no scriptural basis for Bart's understanding of faith. He says, that we can only believe that we believe is at least not the view of Paul, for whom faith is rather the conscious acceptance of the message of salvation, the conscious obedience under God's new saving ordinance. Faith, in other words, is equivalent to confession. Bultmann writes, my justification and my faith, however, are not some sort of pseudo-otherworldly factor, but my faith is something definite and precise in my consciousness. And this then means that faith cannot be without confession. But what faith is as confession seems to me to be treated too briefly by Bart. Now this is, that's academic speech for he doesn't know, have a clue. <laughs> Boltmann then references Romans 10 which states, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Faith is not without confession. Such a confession can come by way of verbal declaration of faith. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Or it can, quote, find its expression in deeds, in the attitudes of people. By comparison, Bart's treatment of confession is, yes, too briefly discussed. On, on the question of Romans 10, with the heart of man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, Bart says, the sequence, heart-mouth, is of no particular importance, nor is the selection of these two organs of any particular significance it might just as well have been feet, or hands, or eyes, or ears. He then turns and makes a ridiculous, startling, we'll say startling, uh, move. He pushes this saving faith into, the, into oblivion. He defines faith as, quote, the free initiative of the absolute moment of the righteousness of God. This moment of the righteousness of God 
is literally a single moment in time, namely the life of Jesus. As such, the faith that saves, quote, occurs within the domain of human possibility, though at its outer limit. For everyone else, he says, this faith is unobserved and unheard of. Bart's gloss on this verse, therefore, is just righteousness does not, however, come of the law, good, but of the faithfulness of God. And we have forerunners here from Bart, a beeline directly to the writings of Richard Hayes and J. Louis Martin, two New Testament scholars who followed Bart's path. At this very point, where Paul draws a causal connection between personal faith and salvation, Bart pushes this faith into the life of God himself. Where Paul sees faith, Bart sees predestination. This answer leaves Boltmann cold. It does not matter to me until it becomes reality for me. Now the third point, Bart's third, uh, third criticism, is that it's impractical. As I was doing research about this, I found a phenomenal quote from Adolf von Harnack in a letter to his friend, Eberhard Vischer. Now, if you ever want to know what an academic thinks, ask them, what, ask, look at their letters or look at their emails. What do they say in private? And it just so happens that if you live long enough and you write it down, people will read it later. Perhaps you didn't wish so, but it happens. And von Harnack says, uh, in 1920, after hearing a lecture by Bart on, on, his, on his book, he says, the consideration that this kind of religion cannot be converted at all into real life, but rather can only appear above it, like a meteor, and an exploding one at that. That does not soften the impression, because one must always ask, uh, must always ask again oneself, how can a pastor who should still be a spiritual counselor, judge in this matter. When Boltmann talks about it, he, he asks quite pointedly, Bard, where is the way to faith? How does one actually become a Christian? Boltmann probes Bard's book for an answer to this question. How does one come to sit to faith? in a way that is intelligible. And yet, Bart sidesteps this question at every turn. The true church is the invisible church of Jacob, whose ear hears and whose mouth speaks of the word of God. They are a hidden people chosen by a sovereign God. In other words, where Bart, where Boltmann wants faith, Bart pushes predestination. The first, fourth criticism I find to be the most interesting. That's why I reserved it for last. Namely, that Bart's concept of faith is dead. For Bart, not, not only is faith unrecognized as, as such by the believer, that the faithful Christian is merely ignorant of herself, self-forgetting, we might say, but, but rather that faith also has no real effect whatsoever. And on this point, Bart is characteristically unambiguous. He writes, When the mercy of God is thought of as an element of human history or a factor of human spiritual experience, 
its truth is its untruth is emphasized. Grace is and always remains in this world negative, invisible, and hidden. The mark of its operation is the declaration of the passing of this world and the end of all things. There is no positive form to grace. There is no effect of grace. He says this elsewhere. No, thy impress of revelation, the impact, the effect of revelation, thy emotion, thy experience and enthusiasm are all of this world. They are flesh, he says. Any attempt to try to, uh, to understand one's life as a, as a cause and effect on the, on the other side of grace is of the flesh, is sin to Barton. He says, where, where it comes to belief, the warmth of feeling, the force of conviction, the achievement of attitude and morality are always only attendant, this-worldly, and therefore in themselves, unimportant characteristics of the actual event of faith. Bart's Christianity is cold, emotionless. It has no heart. It has no good works. It has nothing. It is a void, as he would say. But as Sarah Henley Wilson said earlier, where the grace abounds, emotions abound. The love of God that is poured into our hearts, as Paul says. Christianity is a religion of the heart. The fruit of the Spirit listed by Paul are, an affect, are as affective as they are behavioral. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. I forget the rest, I'm sorry. I was getting bored with myself as I was listening, sorry. Moreover, in his understanding of faith, Bart severs the link between the, between the indicative and the imperative, between what God has done in Christ and the new life in Christ. The seeds planted by forgiveness sprout for Bart into nothing. They do not germinate on this side of the grave. Bart's legacy, I would argue, can be seen whether directly or indirectly in the way that theology and Christian doctrine is construed without reference to its meaningful impact on everyday life. Barth closed off human subjectivity to the degree that, paradoxically, God can become an object of inquiry, like a lab rat might be dispassionately dissected by scientists. The legacy of Bart can be heard in every sermon that confuses truth for significance, orthodoxy for proclamation, and biblical fidelity for good news. By contrast for Boltmann, the gospel is good news precisely because it is impactful, therapeutic even, having a real-world effect by addressing the reality of everyday life. The gospel is a help because it is for me, the me who lives, the me who's anxious before the talk, the me who's done and undone these things which I ought not to have done. Miraculously creating a dynamic faith 
where there was once a void. Later on in 1928, Bowen was asked to write a short little essay commenting on faith as a venture, kind of trend that was propping up at the time. And this is what he says in the midst of this. He says, if the proclamation of God's love is really valid for me, i.e. for me in my concrete life situation, then it, is at, then it is not at all understandable apart from that situation. And I am not to believe in general, but also along but to believe alongside of and also behind my other relationships, but rather am to believe here and now as one who has something to do or to endure. By contrast, if I do not allow my concrete present to be qualified by this word that is spoken to me, then I have not really believed it for all of my hearing. God's word of grace addresses the here and now. It addresses you and addresses me. It addresses us when, as Sam so wonderfully stated, that, the help, that we ask God for help when it is too late. The gospel is for when it is too late. The gospel is for the gap between who we are and who we should be. This insurmountable bridge between chairs <laughs> yes, Trump, see what happens. <laughs> and this is precisely how Bolan would describe the gospel. The gospel is the forgiveness of sins. Now, for him, what this means is everything in your life, heretofore, prior to the invasion of the word, is transfigured by the gospel. You are freed and released by the thing which is burdening you. You, as a human, are indelibly historical. You have a past, and you have a future, and your past dictates your future irrevocably. What brought you to here to this day is that which you will carry for the rest of your life. This is what it means to be human for, for Beaumont. And the forgiveness of sins is the invasion of the word which cleanses the past of its power so that you can walk anew you can walk and face the future with unconditional openness, come what may. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what God is doing in the here and now through the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins. If everything is a cry for help, as Dave Zoll so wonderfully said on Thursday night, then God's grace is not a declaratory of an oblique cosmic reality, but localized precisely to your cry for help. The things of your life that bring you to God, that bring you to your knees, are the very things his word of grace addresses by the Holy Spirit. The things that you would confess to a total stranger on Craigslist are the very things God absolves you of by his grace. Christianity and the gospel is ultimately not an abstraction. 
It is deeply interested in the concrete life existence that you carry with you. And by extension, in the same way that the eternal word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, the word that is preached, the grace of God that invades this world, dwells among us in our particularity. The third, third century theologian, Origen, had a wonderful definition of the gospel. What we, when we say gospel, um, small Greek lesson for you, gospel is euangelion, which simply means good news. Origen de uh, defined this as, quote, speech conveying an announcement of events that rightly, and because of the benefits they bring, give joy to the hearer on receiving the announcement. The telos of the gospel is joy. The purpose of the gospel is freedom, release, exuberance, spontaneity. The gospel is therefore for you, the you that you are, the you that you've always been, the you that you don't want to be in order that, the you, that you might become the you you never dreamed possible. This is not a kind of a prosperity gospel. This is the essence of what Paul is talking about when he says that I have been crucified in Christ. In the life I live in the flesh, I no longer live unto myself, but to him. I once was dead, but now I'm, I'm alive. I once was blind, but now I see. And if God of this gospel is for you, then who can be against you? Thank you.